You may be seated, and if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4. We're actually going to start in verse 7, which I um, neglected to print in our worship guide. Um, So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be looking at verse 7 all the way through verse 11. As you're turning there, um, just let me... um, Remind us that we are, um, we're not passing um, the offering plate during um, COVID, um, so there are a number of ways that you can give. Uh, you can leave um, your tithe in the offering plate over here um, as well. You can also um, give online if you just go to the church website, um, www.zioncolumbia.org. Um, there's a tab you can click on give, or you can set us up with bill pay, um, through your bank, um, and um, you can give that way. All right, First Peter chapter 4, starting with verse 7. This is God's word. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me and ask God's blessing on his word preached? Lord Jesus, we um, stand in your presence because you have been given all dominion and authority for all time, now and forever. There is only one king of all creation. And it is you. And there's only one Redeemer who died for sins, was crucified, bearing the wrath of God, and was raised to new life. And so it is your voice that we want to hear, we need to hear. And so, by your Holy Spirit, do a work of power in our midst. Open our ears to hear, open our eyes to see, enlarge our hearts with your grace, that we may fall at your feet and have you be our greatest delight and our only hope. Your spirit's got to work. And so we're begging for him. In your name, our Savior. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I have found that this is a time of great loneliness. We are separated um, from each other in so many different ways. Every interaction is, is difficult, but this Saying this is a time of loneliness isn't just since COVID came into our lives. This is a time of loneliness for decades. It's been called an age where loneliness is an epidemic. In a survey conducted in Great Britain, nearly half of those over the age of 65, so consider that, 50%, over 50% of those over the age of 65 said that their pet or their TV was their only form of company. In 2015, researchers at 
UCLA discovered that there were health effects as a result of the loneliness epidemic that caused our disconnection from each other at substantial levels, caused chronic inflammation, predisposing the lonely to serious conditions like heart disease, stroke, metastatic cancer, and Alzheimer's disease. Another study, piggybacking on the UCLA study in 2015, pooled studies of 70 different studies together, over three and a half million people over seven years. So a long study with a lot of data found that lonely individuals had a 26% higher risk of dying than those figures rose to 32% if they lived alone. We were made for connection and the pandemic is just further isolating us. We were made for connection because we are made in the image of God who himself exists in eternal community of love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Why did God create man? It wasn't because he was lonely. It was because he wanted to manifest his glory on the earth. And in order for him to do that, he had to make more than just one. And he had to design us to live in community. And yet, for some of us, even though there are drastic costs to loneliness, for some of us, we find that the cost of living in community with others is more costly than the loneliness we experience. And I would suggest that is the struggle for all of us, not just some of us. And let me also suggest that the thing that keeps us most lonely is our unwillingness to be weak and needy. See, every group that we're part of, no matter what it is, every single group that we are part of builds community on strengths and competence. For instance, if you are part of the VFW, it's because you heroically fought in a foreign war. Your sacrifice qualifies you. If you're on an athletic team, it is either because of your efforts or your abilities that got you onto the team. Your job, you interviewed for it, you got it. Your past accomplishments earned your spot in that organization. Regardless of what we are part of, in some way it is built on our entrance into that community, is built on our competence and our strengths, our ability. But here, in the kingdom of Jesus, it's upside down. It's our inability and our neediness that qualifies us for Jesus and then qualifies us for his community. Because the Lord Jesus welcomes us who are poor and he tells us, buy anything in my kingdom that you want, even though you have no money. Use my riches to gain not only access, but anything that you need. And where the leaders of this world gather the rich and the powerful around them to to establish their influence. Jesus, self-contained, righteous, good, says, come to me all who are needy, and I'll give you rest. And you see, that's Peter's point in this section, that Jesus has made the church for the journey that we are on. Like, he does not intend for any of us to go at this alone. That is not his design. 
And so as Peter is bringing this section of his letter to a conclusion, a section that started in verse 11 of chapter 2, as he's bringing this to a conclusion, he's focusing in on the community that Jesus is creating for the journey to the end. So listen to what he says in verse 7. Peter says this about the community. He's addressing these churches in Asia Minor, and he reminds them, the end of all things is at hand. And you see what Peter is doing is he's reminding these churches that the community that they are part of is living in Jesus's story. Because we all ultimately are living in the end of whatever, we're living towards the end of whatever story is going through our mind. The end is always in sight. So we all have an ultimate story that we're trying to live out. For instance, one of the dominant stories in today's world is that everything is about power struggle. Therefore, conflict leads to change. And this cycle will endlessly repeat itself, sort of the story goes, until it just doesn't anymore. Because part of that story is that history is a, a constant conflict, a constant cycle. And whoever gets control, particularly through the narrative of words, gets to control the direction of the next step of the journey because conflict is inevitable, but it'll always lead to change. But that has led us with this myth in mind that progress is always right around the corner. Everything is onward, everything is upward, and the next evolution will be the best. But the Bible tells a different story. The Bible tells a different story that culminates in the person and work of Jesus, that God has been moving history towards an ultimate conclusion. And that conclusion is a new heavens and new earth, a new creation. And the story that the Bible tells us goes out like this. This is what's really playing out in the world. God made the world good where humanity was flourishing. Sin broke into the world and caused it to become corrupted and crash. It broke the world. And it broke our communion with God. But God is doing a new work. And that new work is going to culminate in a new creation that comes at the other end of judgment. Peter's, Peter's just reminded his people this in verse 6, or verse, the end of verse 5. They're going to, all are going to have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And then he reminds us in verse 7 that the end of all things is at hand. And he doesn't mean, hey, the apocalypse is just around the corner. What he's saying is God's final act of redemption has already occurred in the past, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You might think of it this way. Imagine that you're going on a long journey, cross-country trip. Well, you break a cross-country trip into a lot of different stages. And if you do it right, you don't do that as one long trip. You're gonna, I'm going to go to St. Louis today, and then maybe Kansas City the next day, and then Denver the day after that, and then we're just going to break this leg up, this one long leg up into many different legs. And then on the last morning, you wake up and you say, ah, it's the last day. And what you mean is that the last stage of the journey begins now. The end is at hand. And that's the structure 
of the Bible that's in Peter's mind, that the Bible tells the story, one long story of God's work of redemption in history, a long story of many stops along the way. And the story starts again with a good flourishing world ends with salvation through judgment. God brings a new creation after cleansing the world through judgment. And you see what's happened at the cross is that Jesus bore God's judgment for sin and has been raised to new creation life. And now that Jesus has died and rose again, God says, it's the last day of the journey. The end is at hand. I have accomplished this final act of salvation. And all we're going to do from here is drive to the end. But it is finished, accomplished, and Jesus is risen. And Peter's reminding them, that's your story. The story of God's church is the story of victory because Jesus is at the helm. And so Peter's vision is grand, but then he takes that story and he brings it down to normal. It's grand and that the community that, the, that is being created by the redemptive work of Jesus is tremendous and can only be accomplished by the power of a king who has been given new creation life in his hands to dispose to any who would ask for it. But the trajectory of that for Peter and for really the rest of the Bible is just normal day-to-day relationships. And so Peter is saying, this is what the church is. It's living in light of this grand story, so come in. Come in, because we really need each other. And Jesus has given us a gift to help us through these last days. And that gift is a community. So let me close, or not close, let me don't give me, don't let me get your hopes up. We ain't closing. We're transitioning. I was saying this earlier, uh, you know, it's always bad news when the preacher's watch breaks. Um, so, but besides that, you know what it means when a preacher looks at his watch? Nothing. So here's what Peter's saying. Look, here's the story. This is what Jesus is doing in the world, and he's given our relationships with each other as a gift, and this community has five distinctives. So, if you're keeping notes, it is a community that looks forward. I'm going to run through this quick. Don't worry, we'll get back to each of these. It's a community that looks forward. It's a community that looks outward. It's a community that invites inward. It's a community that moves toward. And it's a community that lives upward. Okay, first, a community that looks forward. This is what Peter says. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. And he's echoing what Jesus says in Matthew 25, where he says, keep watch, be ready. If the final act has already begun in the death and resurrection of Jesus, there's only one more thing for him to do, and it's come back. And so be sober-minded and ready. And, and he tells this parable in Matthew 25, Jesus does. He tells a series of parables, but he tells a parable about ten virgins who are waiting for their bridegroom to arrive. And they have to wait all night. One, five of those, don't, they don't prepare for the wait. 
They go in short-handed. They don't bring oil for their lamps. But five do prepare for the wedding. And Jesus calls them the wise ones because they were ready. Not just ready, but ready to wait. Ready to tend their wicks and fill their lamps of oil because they knew that waiting and ready go hand in hand. And Jesus calls them wise. And when the bridegroom arrives, they are received with joy by him. And their joy becomes full. And then Jesus brings the point home. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. That waiting's part of the game. Waiting is towards the end of conclusion when Jesus comes home. And then Peter adds this, Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Because a sense of readiness and urgency sharpens our awareness of our needs for the sake of your prayers. Because we pray most when we are most desperate and feel our weakness the most. And Peter's saying, look out, be ready, and pray. Students, you've probably noticed that the night before a big project or final exam, there's a sort of hyper-focus that takes place. You've procrastinated all this time, the urgency is at hand, there's a hyper-focus on the task that allows you to say no to the many temptations and distractions that come your way because you've You're ready and you're sober-minded. And and Peter's just saying, that's what happens when we are set in the story. Be ready, be sober. Say no to the distraction for the sake of your prayers because it will allow you to focus. Do you struggle with prayer? I do. I don't struggle as much when I feel my weakness and my need. And so it's a community that looks forward. It's also a community that looks outward in love. Verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, for love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And, And Jesus warned that during this time of the end that our love would grow cold. It would grow cold at the end of the age. Love needs to be stoked. It needs logs placed on the fire or else it will quickly burn itself out because, if you haven't noticed, we're kind of difficult. All of us, each of us, are difficult to be around. There's no one that's easy. And because of that, in this community, love is stoked by the love of Jesus for us and as a result goes out from us towards difficult people Because And as a result, love covers a multitude of sins. Not that it has atoning worth. You don't earn your salvation by loving one another. But when love dominates God's people, the tendency to be critical quickly dissipates. Because there's just simply not room for love to dance with a critical spirit. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures 
all things. That is what's true about God's love for you if you're in Christ, but it should also, as a result, be what's true about love in the gospel community. And you see, Peter's going to transition in verse 12 of chapter 4 to a new and final section. And just as he transitioned in verse 11 of chapter 2, and this is how he starts both of those transitions. This is how you know Peter's starting a new section. He says, he looks his people in the eye and says, Beloved, that's who you are. In God's sight, you are beloved. This is far from a perfect church. If it was, Peter wouldn't have to write this letter. Every single one of the letters in the New Testament is written to a church that is broken. But still... It can be said, what is most true about this people isn't their brokenness. Beloved by God. You've been born again by God who is love. You were born out of his love. He sent his son into the world because he loved those that he had chosen. He chose in love. He's given his spirit to shed the love of God abroad in his heart. He's given the spirit so that by his power we might know the height, the depth, the width, the breadth of God's love for us. That is who we are on this journey. And the principle should be like begets like. Apples fall to the ground and they don't make Cadillacs. They make apple trees. And as a result, the love of God has fallen to us should bear the marks of patience with each other and kindness. Shouldn't envy and boast. Shouldn't be arrogant or rude. Shouldn't insist on its own way. How many of our marriages would be transformed if we just employed that one principle? We don't insist our own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices in the truth, the community that Jesus creates should look like Jesus, who creates it. The community that Jesus is creating has to, as a result, have a cruciform shape to that love. It doesn't just flow out of us. It requires work. And it doesn't mean that we just embrace anything and everything, but even in our resistance of the sin in each other's lives, there is a sense of safety and embrace. I love you. You can't walk away. You can't run away from that love. I'll chase after you. Even if you do, there are things in your life that, has, that I've got to resist and address, but it feels so loving when I do that because love is patient and it's kind. And it's cruciform, verse 9. A community that also invites inward. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality was huge and utterly necessary in the time when Peter is writing, when travel was dangerous and inconvenient. There were no Hiltons with concierge levels, Christians were to make their homes and their food available to each other, or else you are stuck out on the road where robbers were and thieves would attack you at night. But to translate it into our culture, you got hospitality can take various forms, inviting, obviously inviting others into your home and sitting down at meals together, but it means 
at least, the very minimum, it means that you move out to those who are struggling and invite them into your lives. That may mean coffee, it may mean meals, it may mean your bedroom, your extra bedroom, it may mean your car, it may mean various things at various times, but it always means that we move out to provide safety for those who are struggling. It's entering into the situation of other people's lives and inviting them into your situation. And look, look, this also means that we create a community where it's safe to fail. Not just that we move out and not just that we pull people in, but that the community itself is hospitable to the failures of others and to our own. Because the community that Jesus creates has to be shaped like Jesus. Because, you know, when, when we fail, the Father's voice doesn't say to us, you've done it again. I can't believe I've put up with this enough. I'm done with you. The Father's voice instead sounds like this. You're okay. You've done it again. Let's give it another try. You're in Christ You have fellowship with me. You have wandered away and broken my law. You've done it again. But my love not only forgives 70 times 7, it forgives 7 billion times 7 billion times 7 trillion until the day arrives when my son comes back to take you home. So let's get up and try again. No matter how often you fall, if you are in Christ, there is no possibility of losing the Father's love. And so Peter knows that that kind of community, where we're sinning against each other and where we're kind of difficult to be around is difficult. And so he adds, show hospitality without grumbling. He knows doesn't come easily. It only comes by the power of the gospel in the hands of Jesus and by his spirit. It's a community that then moves toward in service. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks as oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And and each has a gift. If you, when you come to faith in Christ, God gives you the ability, something very unique to allow you to serve in his church. So it's varied grace. Like none of us have gifts that outdo one another. None of us have gifts that are more important than each other's. It's a varied grace. And he breaks it up into two categories, some that speak and some that serve. And they're all essential But whatever you do, do it by the strength that God supplies. If it's speaking His word, it's because you've been given His word to speak. You didn't do this. It's not your insights or wisdom. But if it's serving, it's not by your own strength, by the strength that God supplies. And you don't have to be good at everything. None of us are. And the more we're okay with that, the better our community will be. I'm not the hero. I can't do this all on my own. You're not the hero. You can't do it all on your own. And I think one of the things that really keeps us from enjoying each other is we covet each other's abilities. 
I wish I was really good at that. Which is a tremendous thing. It could lead to actual appreciation, but I'm not, and I'm so thankful God has made them good at that. Because I'm terrible at it, and I need them. Instead, if it leads us to, I wish I was good at that, and I'm not, and it's just condemnation that flows in guilt and shame, then we need to realize and step back. God has given gifts of varied abilities to His church, and it's essential. And we should delight as a result in the gifts of others because by God's design, we aren't self-sufficient. That's not, our neediness is not a bug. It's not a result of the fall. In God's first flourishing creation, Adam couldn't do it on his own by God's design. It took him a while to realize that, as it often does for men, but he did. And God took him to that place. Finally, it is a community that lives upwards. Because the gospel community lives to an end outside of itself. Community for the sake of community always implodes. It will always turn on itself. Community just for the sake of community will always implode on itself. It simply cannot sustain the weight that's put on it. A well-functioning community that flourishes and thrives is sustained by the Lord Jesus, created by His love, and lives to the end of His glory. This is the end of our passage. Whoever speaks is one who speaks, oracles of God, whoever serves is one who serves, by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. That's the goal that we're shooting at. Not community for the sake of community, but for the glory of Jesus, a community that matches his gospel. So let me leave us with three action steps. One, take the posture that this community is going to be costly but that Jesus is enough and that you are precisely the person who is needed for this moment in the life of this church. In a book that our life groups are going through called Meaningful Relationships, all of our life groups are going through it, the author says this, Our calling is to care for each other's souls. We want to bring our struggles to the Lord and to each other so that the church can be strengthened and the world can witness wisdom and love. But since we have a long list of our own problems, we could easily think that care for others is best left to those who are more qualified. But the kingdom of God operates in ways we might not expect. Here the humble and the weak are the ones who do the heavy lifting. The Lord is pleased to use ordinary people through seemingly ordinary acts of love to be the prime contributions to the maturity of his people. You're precisely the person that is needed for this moment in the life of the church. And so put that on as a mindset. Second, let me encourage you to reach out to some of our older saints. Hear those stats echoing that I introduced at the beginning, echoing in our mind. Because many of our, if not most of our older saints, are most isolated during this time. 
and it's been going on for a long time. It's not going to end anytime soon. Make a phone call, drop a note, do both. Many of our older saints haven't seen the face of their brothers and sisters since March. And it's bearing down on them. Third, and lastly, take the initiative to get into a life group. We've added two life groups during COVID, and we're looking for facilitators to launch more life groups. Are our primary means of fellowship and relationship? They aren't primarily for teaching. They're primarily for doing community life together. All you need to do, if you are interested in leading or being in one, all you've got to do is contact Terry Eves, um, who is our small groups director. Just pull her aside today, send us an email, contact any one of us. Um, and we will get you in touch with Terry, and she can get you plugged into a life group where we can learn and actually live this out in a better way. Well, the Lord Jesus is on his throne, and I think that this particular time of COVID is teaching us these lessons from 1 Peter 4, that we really need this kind of community or we're not going to make it to the end. And so let's pray. The Lord Jesus, King of grace and mercy, who lives in fellowship with your Father and the Spirit, I pray that you would create in us the courage, the faith, the hope to live in community with one another. And where we are trepidatious and fearful of that, calm us. And when we are selfish and self-consumed because of the imposition that will be on our lives, convict us. And in all things, may your grace and your love for us drive us out of ourselves to live for your glory and for the good of others. And now as we come to your table, this is what we ask. As we as a family eat together, take these ordinary elements and use them to the extraordinary end of feeding us on your gospel. And so we pray this in your name, our Savior. Amen.